Hello, and welcome back to part two of the special Operation Iraqi Freedom journal series that I'm doing in my My Life So Far podcast. If you haven't done so yet, I encourage you to go back and read or listen to part one of this series as it really sets up everything that's going to come from here on out over the next several, probably four to five actual articles or podcasts on Operation Iraqi Freedom and my experience during that time. This will be a little bit different than what you would read on the text base post. There, it's a little bit easier to separate the actual journal entries and the comments that I would add later to clarify what was happening. So what I'm going to do during these podcasts is you'll hear me read the date and the actual journal entry that I kept, and then I'll pause. And when I pause and then I restart, it's usually me either going to the next journal entry, I'll do the date again and followed by the journal entry, unless I added some actual comments later on to explain what was happening. And then I will say those comments, then I will pause, and then I will go on with the next journal entry. So I hope that makes sense. Hope you can follow along. If you get a little bit confused, you might want to go back and read the text version of it. But I'm, I'm really honored to share these with you because they represent, as I said in part one, uh, a season of my life that had a tremendous impact on the entire course of my life and much of how I now view the world and want to live in it. So I hope that you are able to get something from listening to this experience in its rawest of form of, of journal entries. You'll notice that with the journal entries themselves, one last thought before I actually start reading, that some of them are very, very short and some of them are, are longer. So typically, if I do have comments to explain what was happening, they come after the ones that are pretty short and the ones that are longer. Uh, I don't add very much commentary afterwards because they kind of are self-explanatory to begin with. So, all right, here we go. February 12th. Depart Fort Sill at 7 to 8 p.m. from Lawton Regional Airport on a C-5 Galaxy. Arrive in Dover, Delaware around 11 p.m. It's below freezing with snowdrifts. Highlight is watching David Letterman in the Air Force Chow Hall. I remember that it was a beautiful day in Fort Sill, unseasonably warm, so it was quite the jarring difference from when we arrived in Dover. February 13th. Sometime around 1 a.m., we get the word that the bird is ready to fly. I spread out on my row of seats. There was only about 20 of us on our chalk with 60 seats. Put in my earplugs and don't wake up until we are about to land in Marone, Spain. It's around lunchtime. Remember getting off the plane and seeing 15 to 20 C5s. Weather is beautiful. Land is green with palm trees. Our couple-hour layover stretches. However, we enjoy the meals, great chow hall, take a much-needed bird bath, and get to watch the news we are making. Eventually, we are sent to a big metal shed with bunk beds and catch a couple of hours of sleep. February 14th. Sometime in the morning, too, I think, we get the word that we are leaving. Next stop, Kuwait. Once again, I slept for most of the flight, arrive in Kuwait in the afternoon. I stopped my stopwatch that I started when we left Oklahoma, 38 hours of flying and layovers. We taxied for one and a half hours as the C-5s in front of us unloaded. I slept more. After unloading the vehicles, we had our IDs checked and processed into the country or theater by two soldiers with laptops in the back seat of a white SUV. We were told to wait behind our vehicles so that nobody would take a shot at us from across the airfield. We then drove our small convoy a few minutes to a huge tent holding area. Our convoy at Camp Udari wasn't supposed to leave until late that night. 
After an initial in-country brief, pre-war rules of engagement handed out, don't mess with the wildlife, etc., we went to a tent to rest and eat MREs. Someone grabbed a football, and long story short, we played a pickup game with some Marines and a couple of Brits. We won big. At 10 p.m., we left a convoy to Camp Udari. Took about three hours. After we got off the freeway, it was a very bumpy ride. February 15th. Arrived at Camp Udari at 1.30 a.m., unpacked bags and sensitive equipment, and were shown some tents to crash in. We dropped our bags, I pulled out a poncho liner, and slept. Kinda. It was very cold. I would describe the tents as being long, probably able to hold about 40 or so soldiers, if I recall. They had wood floors, and I believe they were built by the Nationals. From February 16th to March 18th, I didn't make any detailed journal entries, but did make a brief list of things I did for most of the days. Saturday 16th through Thursday the 20th. Getting settled in. Set up the talk. Did a lot of unpacking during these days, settling into the tents, setting up the talk, meaning tactical operations and logistics center, I believe. It's essentially the task force headquarters. It was a pain in the butt. Set up a lot of tents, and the officers wanted the huge metal pallets from the C-5 as floors in their tents. We erected antennas, filled sandbags, strung Constantino wire, etc. On the 17th or 18th, I was a part of a detail to set up a huge tent for maintenance. After we set it up, I was closing the side gate on a Hemet trailer, and one of the three panels fell off and landed on my toe. It really hurt. Eventually had it x-rayed the next day at the camp's tent hospital, which was nice and clean and air-conditioned. But it turned out all right. The bruise didn't go totally away, however, until a month or so after I got back from Iraq. This would be my only physical war wound. Glorious, I know. Friday the 21st. Joined Met Alpha Mobile Exploitation Team. I was initially assigned to the security platoon, but was getting the impression that our job was going to be pretty boring, a lot of tedious details. As soon as I heard they wanted to take some guys from security and place them on the MET teams, I was quick to volunteer, again. I knew generally that the METs were going to be doing some of the most important work in regard to our task force's mission to find WMDs. I had a brief interview with some of the leadership of the MET teams, including CW2 Chief Gonzalez of MET Alpha. They described our job as providing security for quote-unquote 50-pound heads, scientific geeks from the Pentagon, etc., as they exploited possible WMD sites. They also told me about the danger associated with our mission as we were the teams that were most likely to be exposed to contaminated environments, which meant long hours, perhaps up to 12 at a time, in MOP, or what we call Mission-Oriented Protective Posture 4, the highest level of NBC, Nuclear Biological Chemical, protection. Full MOP suits, boots, gloves, and gas masks. Scenarios were described to me, such as how I would respond to the order to go into a contaminated environment to save another team member that had already been affected. I told them that while the idea of being in MOP 4 at 115 degree heat and dealing with some of the most dangerous materials known to man didn't sound like fun, I would do my duty and go in after my fellow team member. I think they found my college background and the fact that I was in an MOS that required a security clearance as good reasons to take me, but I'm just speculating on that. One thing I did find out later is that they assumed I had been in the service for at least a few years since I was a specialist. They were a little surprised that I had only been in a little over six months, but by then I had already been chosen and chiefs seemed to like me. Saturday 22nd. Trained with SF guys. Starting on the 22nd, we began a fairly intensive time of training that lasted about a week. On this day, we focused on room clearing and urban warfare. 
We trained with a former SF, Special Forces guy, now privately contracted. Side note, those guys make serious cash. We had several SF guys, some active and some retired, as part of the 75th XTF. It was implied that some of them were there because of their knowledge of NBC weapons, such as one retired Navy SEAL and his knowledge of nuclear weapons. However, we only knew them by their first names. Their uniforms were sterilized, meaning that they had no rank, name, and unit patches. And as a regular old specialist, I, of course, was not privy to more detailed information. They were colorful, but pleasant, with an ever-present sense of humor, probably a necessity given their line of work. Of course, they were SF guys, which, to a bunch of field artillery rocket boys, was pretty cool. Thanks to Hollywood and Tom Clancy video games, they had taken on a mythical, near-godlike reputation among the garden-variety soldier. Needless to say, we thought it was somewhat ridiculous that we would be serving as their quote-unquote security on missions, especially since several of them were carrying more weapons than we were. As far as the training goes, it was the beginning of a week-long crash course on basic urban warfare infantry skills that included things like situational awareness, what to pay attention to, such as rooftops, windows, hands, loose-fitting or unusual clothing like a heavy jacket on a 90-degree day, movement, how to move down streets, such as in a wedge formation or usually a ranger file, single file. Identifying the staging points before movement and contingency plans. Hand signals for halt, freeze, rallying point, etc. Room clearing. How to approach a room or building, staying clear of the windows. Preparing to enter, such as hand signals for open or closed doors. Placing either two on each side of the door, what they call crossover, or all four together, such as stacking. Using a breacher. The signal to go, thumbs are rocking. How to enter, the communication, one goes deep, etc. Fields of fire, communicating to your team after completing a clearing, such as one up, two up, three up, four up, all clear, or coming out when exiting. With logs laid out in the sand to simulate the walls of a room, we rehearsed over and over again. We emphasized the danger zones, such as what they call the fatal funnel, that is the doorway, and coffin corners, which is the corners of the room, especially left and right and other crucial rules, such as never sweep your buddy with the barrel of your rifle and never leave an unclear room behind you. Weapons readiness. How to sling our weapons using 550 cord and the existing sling that comes with an M16 so that our weapons hung, quote-unquote, at the ready, that is, on your lower chest, upper stomach. How to position your clips on your LBV, that is, your load-bearing vest, so that you can quickly load and reload your weapon. We would review and practice these things many times in the weeks to follow. Sunday 23rd, trained on sling loading, dry run. Sling loading is attaching cargo to vehicles, small ones like a Humvee, to the bottom of a helicopter such as a Chinook or Blackhawk. We never had to do this for a mission, but there was a possibility so we had to train for that contingency. The first day we went over how to prepare a vehicle that is going to be sling loaded, xing tape over the windows, dropping the windshield on the hood, etc., and preparing the rope. Depending on the vehicle and how its weight is displaced, you have the ropes, attached to the front and the rear, set at certain chain lengths to balance the vehicle while in flight. We also went over the basic hand motions for the person designated to guide the helicopter over the cargo vehicle. We eventually found out that this was a mere formality as most helicopter pilots and their crew, who spot the cargo through a small window on the belly of the chopper, are more than capable to position the chopper, certainly more than ourselves. Monday 24th. Received first letter. Trained loading Blackhawk. My first letter was from Uncle Ralph and Aunt Nan, I believe. Letters were tremendously important for all of us, especially during the early phase when communication was so poor. 
I will dedicate an entire entry in the future to letters received and written during this time. We walked over to the airfield, an immense strip of asphalt in the middle of the desert that had Blackhawks and Chinookses literally as far as the eye could see. It's my understanding that most of them were made up of the air support units of the 101st Airborne Division. We were instructed on how to approach a helicopter, between 2 and 4 and 8 and 10. If you were to look at the nose of a chopper, it's 12 on a clock. Make sure to duck, especially for a tall guy like myself. We learned how the low point of the blade is in the front of the chopper, so hug the nose if you ever go around it on the other side. We had quite a few people on our teams, and we were told that the likelihood of us riding on a black hog were minimal. It turned out to be true since we never rode on one. But we had to prepare ourselves for the possibility. We would take turns, met Alpha and Bravo, running up to the chopper, getting in and buckling up. It was somewhat humorous since we had a lot of gear, and some of the guys from the Pentagon were a little chubby to say the least. This was all done with the Blackhawk not running. Tuesday 25th, Sling-Loaded Blackhawk. This was one of the highlights of my time overseas. That evening we went over to the airstrip where they had a gator, one of those small John Deere golf cart deals slinged up. Basically, we would train his teams, one person to hold the hook that attaches to the chopper, and two to hold him as he stands on top of the vehicle. Once we were in position, a Blackhawk would come in and hover over us until we hooked it to the bottom. Then we would hop off the vehicle and run off to the left side of the gator. Chopper pilots are trained to brake to the right if anything goes wrong. I got to hold the hook twice, and it was a blast, literally. First to see the faint silhouette of a Blackhawk, floating maybe 20 feet or less off the ground until it's right over me. I could reach out and touch the belly if I wanted to. And to feel the blast of the rotor wash as it approached. The calm while it was directly over us, and then the return of the blast of air as we ran away, which can nearly knock you over. That was amazing. Wednesday, 26th, Blackhawk Down. It was very sobering to find out the next day that a couple of Blackhawks from Camp Udari nearly collided and that one of them crashed, killing all the crew. I have no idea if it was the helicopter crew we trained with, but it pointed out that we were involved in a very dangerous business even before the war started. Wednesday, 27th, Training Mission Number 1, Convoy. The first of two dry-run training missions on exploiting a potential WMD site. We convoyed out to a remote television or satellite station that the U.S. blew up in the first Gulf War, and myself and a couple of other guys essentially pulled security on the perimeter while the rest of the team took the 50-pound heads into the site to do a mock exploitation. Thursday the 28th, training mission number two, chopper slash night. Again, if I recall correctly, we went back to the same site, but this time we rode a Sea Knight. It's the Navy or Marine version, smaller one at that, of a Chinook. Have to admit it was a lot of fun, running out of the back with sand flying everywhere and then feeling the blast of the rotor wash as it took off. I don't recall what we did the rest of the time, probably similar to the previous day. The only other highlight was getting picked up again. It was later at night and you could see the sparks flying off the rotors believe it is an effect of the static electricity coming off the blades and the sand colliding. In part three, we will continue to review journal entries, this time from the month of March of 2003, the month that the war in Iraq began. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember that you can check out more of my takes on faith, social justice, and popular culture, along with other life-inspired musings by visiting www.curtelewis.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from this and other publications featured on my website, would you take a few minutes to show your support? First, you can share it with your friends via social media, text, message, email, word of mouth, pigeon bird, cave art, whichever you prefer.
Second, if you're listening on iTunes, take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast and to give it a positive review. Lastly, you can help me to continue to produce these podcasts by making monthly or one-time financial contributions. Click on subscribe support on the website to learn more. Again, thanks so much for listening.